Rick, and I apologize for not answering your question earlier. I do know people in the home health space. How about um, after this, I'll email you a couple of uh, folks that I know here in Arizona yeah. that can reach out to you and talk to you about the billing processes with Medicare, Medicaid, and what to expect. I'll have them contact you and then you guys can just talk shop. Yeah. All right, cool. I appreciate it. Thank you. You bet. That was our last group call with Seth Bacon. And these are the kind of opportunities you're missing out on by not being a Patreon member. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I got to go get that other guy. Hey guys, High Energy Austin here. These are the kind of opportunities you're missing out on by not being a Patreon member. We literally have these past guests hooking you up with contacts to help you with your business and giving advice on what they do in your situation. And the guests you're about to listen to, Aviv, see, he's a real smart guy and he's going to be on an upcoming group call. So if you want to get in on these group calls with a high energy guy like me and a smart guy like Aviv, then become a Patreon member today. Now, on to this episode. Do you know any 18-year-old who gets to play with satellites? <laughs> no, I, I don't know if I want an 18-year-old <laughs> playing with satellites either. <laughs> My partner and I were trying to think, is there a better way to figure out the right price for either rental properties or hotel rooms? A little piece of advice for the entrepreneurs in the group or people who think about entrepreneurship. It's like a triple win situation where we were able to increase the size of the pie so much that everybody's happy. And I know it's a little mind blowing, but nobody is actually pays for this. Everybody's making more money through using our service. Hi, everybody. My name is Aviv Shalgi. I'm 34 years old from Chicago, Illinois. And my current startup is called Solar Simplified. We're building an online platform that connects consumers and small businesses directly with solar developers. So the large-scale solar power plants that you sometimes see in suburbs or rural areas of the United States and potentially later on around the world. And our goal is twofold, I would say. First of all, to break the ties where renewable energy seems to be for everybody, but we're all subsidizing through our taxpayers' money, an industry that usually is connected just B2B. So most of the renewable energy in the United States and in the world is unfortunately going to the large for-profit corporations. And there's been all sorts of justifications for that. 20, 30, 40 years ago, those obstacles have been removed as time passes. The second reason is that renewable energy's price is going down. And there is no reason for people not to save money on the electricity bill every month if they can while supporting renewable energy. If people were interested in your company, so I just go up and sign up at your website with Solar Simplified. You're just telling me if I'm eligible to get some solar panels for a discounted rate or like, I guess I'm just kind of confused exactly how it works here for the consumer. Sure. So there's no installation. It's a virtual solution where we connect you to an off-site tens of miles or a few small hundreds of miles away from your home. It can't be too far away for technological reasons, which maybe we'll dive into later. But yes, for the customer, you go into our website, solarsimplified.com, put your zip code, give us a little bit of your details so we would know that you're you. And assuming that we have a solar power plant that's available in your area, we would make that connection. 
connection. If we don't have anything ready right now, we'll obviously save your contact details, either your phone or your email, and we'll reach out to the moment that we have a solar power plant available. But there's no installation involved. There are no hurdles for the customers, I would say. You should just keep on paying your utility bill as usual, and you'll see, depending on the state, different regula there are different regulatory requirements. But generally speaking, our goal is for us to just be another line item on your utility bill. And some states are more advanced in terms of regulation in allowing that. Other states have different types of requirements. So we're working with them to achieve that and kind of making it simple for the customer, whether they're a renter, which is a whole different market that solar panels right now is not servicing, whether you're a homeowner just living in a shaded area or your roof is too old or your roof is just too small. And even if you install solar panels, not going to make sense. So if you think about it, about 80% of Americans right now are not eligible for all sorts of reasons for solar panels. We're trying to give those people a solution to be able to support renewable energy while saving money and kind of make that simple and seamless. For me, is there any benefit if I go sign up or do I just feel good that I'm going to use y'all solar instead of all my local power plant energy and therefore helping the environment? Yes, you will save money every month on your utility bill. Our most basic offering right now across the country in the places that we service is a 10% discount. So any dollar that's being generated through solar energy that is obviously connected through us, you would save 10% on that. So let's say for the simple example, if I was able to generate on Austin's behalf $100 worth of solar energy, you would only pay 90 for that. So you just by signing up online, you just save $10. If I was able to generate more, you'll save more. If I was able to generate less, you'll save less. But with solar energy, the amount of generation is not necessarily up to us. It's more up to the sun and the weather and the clouds. But we're trying to follow regulation. Regulation allows us only to allocate the average last 12 months of consumption that each person or each household had. So we'll always try to allocate as much as we can, obviously following the regulatory environment and save you as much money as we can while you're supporting renewable energy. Okay. So when I sign up, like you're saying, I guess I'm still not understanding me from a consumer point of view, how I save money. Like maybe just walk me through the basics of understanding this, because it doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense if I don't have to pay anything to sign up and use y'all's solar simplified and it saves me money. I guess I'm just confused and I'm sure maybe others are too. Sure. And I understand that people are sometimes confused. How can they get things or services or products when they don't have to pay for that? Exactly. <laughs> you should say you understand that. <laughs> so it's a little bit confusing. It's a little bit confusing. I definitely understand that. The idea behind what we're doing is the cost of generating renewable energy is lower than the cost of generating the regular electricity that we're all using, coal, natural gas, et cetera, et cetera. Because we're able to generate our, obviously our partners, we don't own these power plants, but because our partners who build and own these solar power plants, their cost for generation is lower. We can still sell it at a lower price kind of and provide that discount even without losing money. So think of the fact that you maybe can go to the supermarket and buy one of two apples. The apple costs something to grow, whether it was the land or the equipment or water, fertilizers, et cetera, et cetera. And for one farmer, that apple costs a dollar and they're selling it for $2. For another farmer, the same exact species of apple, maybe they were able to save some money and it only cost them half a dollar to grow that apple. And so they're able to sell you at the same margin, the margin of a dollar, 
but for a retail price of a dollar and a half. So you just saved money by buying from one farmer versus another farmer. That's basically what we're trying to help facilitate. But this entire world has always been reserved for corporations for great reasons. But those reasons have passed in the last few decades. And so right now, all of those hurdles that used to exist don't exist anymore. So we're trying to bring this offering to the mass market and not just keep it in the corporations. Well, thank you for making it simple. I think that makes sense because if we're comparing apples, apples could be substituted for a unit of energy. It's the same thing, right? So that at least makes more sense. I guess your business, hopefully we get a at least decent understanding of it now. We can dive in details later on, but how many people do you have working for you today? And like, how big is your company? We're very small. We started a little over six months ago, raised our seed round. Right now we're six people. It's a very small team. We're servicing about a thousand households so far and just keeps growing every day. So very fortunate. You're out of Chicago? We are. The first markets that we started in are actually in the Northeast. So we started in New York, the state of New York, expanding through Massachusetts, New Jersey, Maine, Obviously, looking here at Illinois, we've been asked by a few companies in the market to go to Texas. So definitely looking to expand as quickly and as best we can throughout the country. And how big was your seed round? It was about $2 million. What was your pitch to them? It was the same pitch that I'm sharing with you right now, obviously from a different angle. The idea was we're able to save people money through giving a better service and creating a better platform for the developers, for the companies who are building these solar power plants. So they are actually the ones that were solving the larger pain point versus the customer. For the customer, we're trying to do everything as seamless as possible. So that it's easy to go online, put in your details, sign up, get the discount, save money, while supporting renewable energy. The bigger problem is, is with the developers. Yeah, but for your company too, so are you making it seamless as far as like, how do you actually make money? I understand the concept now, I think, but you personally and you as a business, how are you making the money? Great question. Think of the Uber model. Uber is basically connecting Uber, Lyft, all of the ride sharing apps. Wait, what's Uber? I'm sure no, I'm just, I'm kidding. <laughs> all of the ride sharing apps, if you think about them, they're facilitating a connection between a driver and a rider and taking a cut. We're doing the exact same thing, facilitating renewable energy power plant with somebody who wants to buy or use renewable energy in their home or in their business. We're obviously taking a cut in the middle for facilitating this because marketing and customer support and the technology itself obviously costs money to build. But we're trying to increase the size of the pie. So make sure the developer is making more money than they used to before using our services and also making sure the customer is saving as much money as we can by using our services. So everybody should be happy. It's like a triple win situation where we were able to increase the size of the pie so much that everybody's happy. And I know it's a little mind blowing, but nobody is actually pays for this. Everybody's making more money through using our service just because we're creating a completely new market that just wasn't there before. So if you think of the online retail 20 years ago, before Amazon came in, the market was there, which was just very, very small and very costly. When Amazon stepped in, sure, money shifted from side to side, and we can definitely argue about what happened, but the market as a whole grew, I don't know if tenfold or a hundredfold or a thousandfold, but grew very significantly to the point where even though some retailers are paying Amazon a fee for facilitating these services, the market is just so large that they're still making more money even after paying Amazon a fee. 
And this had happened in multiple types of markets. We're not the first ones to try to create a brand new market. It's obviously a challenge. So hopefully we're going to make it to a point of national scale. Email Octopus was founded in 2014 to help anyone with an audience grow. Their mission is to provide email marketing that's simpler, more intuitive, and better value. They're committed to saving you money and never compromise on deliverability. From self-published authors to food blogging superstars and charities to online stores, they've helped over 56,000 organizations send more than 11 billion emails. And guess what? You can check it out now for free. So it's free for up to 2,500 subscribers. And great if you're just starting out with building an audience or have a smaller one. All the essential tools you need to get started with email marketing, including customizable signup forms, autoresponders, and list segmentation. Affordable pricing from just 20 bucks a month. It's a user-friendly platform that's quick and easy to set up and navigate in seconds. Email Octopus also integrates with thousands of other apps, including landing page builders and so much more. Great customer service whenever you need it from real humans. Easy to use automation for setting up welcome emails and drip campaigns, such as email courses. You know, what I like about Email Octopus the most is the straightforward pricing that scales with your business. And guess what? Right now, Email Octopus is offering our listeners 50% off their first month. Visit emailoctopus.com slash millionaire or quote code millionaire dash 50 at sign up. Again, for 50% off your first month of email marketing, visit emailoctopus.com slash millionaire or quote code millionaire dash 50 at sign up. I'm glad you're able to catch up and see those old group calls and those are definitely helping. Yeah, and probably the most helpful one has been with a gal that did PR. Megan Bennett. Yes, yes. Like I listened to that whole thing with all the people's questions and her ideas. And I like how, you know, you got her to tell more stories than just the regular interview. And you said, so there's five others on the team other than you? Yes, there are. Are they all in Chicago? No, actually. We are four people in Chicago. One is in Tennessee and one is in California. And so is this your first business or company that you started? No, it's my third, actually. Well, yeah, we can go talk about the others, but I guess I'm curious, are these all new hires or because again, it's still kind of a newer company. So just curious of like hiring practices and how you're able to find those people and how that worked out for you. Sure. So two of them are my partners, co-founders in actually starting this company. And we we're bouncing off ideas and kind of decided that we want to work together. And this is a big enough problem that we want to tackle and we think it's interesting enough. Three others are definitely new hires um, that we've hired in the last few months. Anything around sales, customer success, customer experience, operations, things of that nature. As we service more people, we obviously need to increase the size of our staff in order to make sure that everything is as seamless as possible possible. And should something happen in the back end, none of our customers can feel that there was any problem. And so on the back end, again, if we dive a little bit more even in detail on your business now, are you like building a platform to connect the payments or something of that nature between the solar people and a local electricity power plant or a local utility company for a city, if you will? So right now our model is an opt-in model. 
So let's say if you live in the state of New York where we're servicing right now, you can go online and just sign up. We're not trying to do any type of forcing people to sign up because they live in a specific neighborhood or in a specific municipality. So people can make their decision for themselves. But yes, the idea is to kind of wrap around the entire service under one roof. So if you need to make a payment, you'll either make it solely for the utility if that's possible and you don't need to pay us anything or if just regulatory requirements don't allow that then we will try to make sure that you pay us and we will kind of transition the rest of the payment after our fee to the solar developers so that solar developers and solar companies don't need to deal with the hassle of customer service and billing and god forbid you know collections if people don't pay things of that nature i think the nice thing about our method of payment we're trying to emulate what the people are used to, which is how the utilities are charging most of the people by charging post payment is the method that's called. So you will get the solar credits and then you will need to pay us less, whether through the utility or to us directly, that just depends on the regulation. But you're going to see the discount, you're going to see the solar generation, the credits on your utility bill, and only then you'll need to pay for them. And so, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, to me, that that's a whole different skill set versus if they're trying to figure out where to put these solar panels, right? I can see why there has been a spot available in this market for your company to be established because who wants to really do all that? Like that company who installs the solar panels doesn't want to do all this back end and payment stuff. It seems like that y'all are taking care of, correct? Right, right, completely. And again, it's just been shown not by us, but by multiple regulatory nonprofits or agencies across the country that most of the people, at least in the United States, and say for a fact that it's true in other places in Europe, in the Middle East, in, in Asia and Latin America, there are a lot of locations where you just can't install solar panels. It's either not cost effective. Again, the roof is too small. The sun is not shining strongly enough throughout the year. The roof is too old or the area is too small, things of that nature. It just doesn't make sense. So the idea here is to try to surface as many people as we can and not say, well, 80% of the market, we're just going to ignore your guys' existence, hope to take control over the 20%. To me, I very much like, and, and my two previous businesses were the same, I like to go to places where there is a little bit of competition, but nothing too fierce. And happily, installing solar panels, that market is very saturated. There are a lot of companies who do that, some better than others. For us, nobody right now is trying to do something that's similar to what we're doing. That's what I was going to ask. Is that part scary then, that no one else is doing what you're doing? I mean, it's scary and challenging at the same time. It's exciting because we're trying to create something that never existed before on a national scale and then expanding on a global scale. So it's definitely going to be challenging, especially since every country and here in the United States, even every state has its own regulatory requirements. How do you facilitate energy? How do you charge and bill people? It's definitely a challenge. But to me, that's what's exciting is you get to create something that doesn't exist and provide a service to people who might not even be aware that such a service could exist. I mean, we're talking about people literally signing up for two minutes, continuing to pay their monthly bill. Obviously, you're not going to get free electricity, unfortunately. <laughs> but as long as you continue to pay your monthly bill, you're going to see a discount on your bill while supporting renewable energy. To me, it was a no-brainer when the light bulb came up. As a consumer, if I could have signed up my house for this, I mean, gosh, why wouldn't you? It literally takes a minute to do that. 
So for me, it's just exciting to wake up every morning and, and go to work, so to speak. Obviously, we're all working from our homes right now and trying to stay safe as much as we can, but it's exciting. We're creating, our team is working and creating something that just doesn't exist and benefits society. So I don't know if I recommended listening to a particular episode before we did our interview. I think you checked out a couple, right? I didn't. Yeah. Well, I was going to say one that I don't know if I recommended this one. I think that you might find beneficial or kind of in the same realm is episode 88. It was a guy named Trevor Hill with Fathom Water. Did you check out that one? I did not, but I'll check it right after. Okay. Yeah. Check that one afterwards because basically he kind of did a billing service where he'd go into... I live in a place called Neptune Beach, and it's a very small place, part of Jacksonville, but basically... Let's say it's a square two miles or whatever, but they do the water billing and I'm getting overcharged big time. And basically they would come in as a private company, buy that up and then put better meters on everything and then sell it back to them. So it made it more efficient. And that way I'm getting a lower bill as well. So I, I thought maybe just while you, as you were talking or anyone else who's interested in kind of the space on like how you can take utilities and make them more efficient. And so you can make a, your own company. I just find that kind of fascinating because it's not something you really think about in business, right? At least me particularly. Like I might look at a product or a new bag of chips that are coming out or something. I'm like, okay, I can understand how someone made that. But this is kind of more outside the box. And especially with the ability to make things more efficient in utilities or renewable energies, I think it's definitely a future for that. And at the same time, you're building a business that I think you can be proud of. That's just my two cents. If you check out that episode 88, that was one of my favorites as well. Obviously like this one. So let's keep going. As far as your story, I think we got an overview and I appreciate you diving in those details. Do you want to reel it back to a point in your story where you think is the best part to pick up? Because I'm noticing, I don't think you're from America, are you? I am not. I'm Israeli originally. I moved here about five years ago. And yeah, happy to jump back. I'm originally an electrical engineer, worked at one of the very large hardware companies doing designing chips and hardware that goes into computers and cell phones and things of that nature. And I learned very quickly that while I love technology, I don't love coding and I don't love designing hardware. And so I made the switch. I went to work in management consulting for one of the top three in the world. Was that in Israel? It was still in Israel. It was before I moved here. So even before that, where were you born in Israel and grew up? I was born and grew up in Tel Aviv, which is an awesome beach city. If nobody's been there, highly recommended. If you like warm weather all year long, just amazing place to live in and to grow up in. Obviously served in the Israeli military, was an intelligence officer. Well, one second, if you don't mind me saying that too, because when you say obviously, I don't think everyone knows, don't you have to serve in the military? You do have to. Yeah, for a couple of years? Yes. Was it two or three, four? How many years did you have to serve? I think right now it's two and a half for men and women. When I was in the military, it was three for men. And I think they cut back a couple of months. I served a little over four years. Did you like that experience or no? I did. Obviously, I was more on the tech on the geek side of things. So it was super interesting. I was in a unit that was operating Israel satellites. Do you know any 18-year-old who gets to play with satellites? <laughs> No, I, I don't know if I want 18-year-olds playing with satellites either. <laughs> I mean, I don't even know 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds who get to do those things. And while obviously, you know, all of the Hollywood movies portray this as, as being much cooler than it really is, <laughs> 
I mean, it was awesome. It was a great opportunity to learn a completely new and very innovative technology. How does that work? Think of very big problems. And just to consider, you know, how do we protect the country as much as we can? So it was very challenging, not a lot of sleep, but extremely motivating, extremely fascinating. And so you did that right when you turned 18 and served four years there? I did. Were you still based out of Tel Aviv, even though you're working for, is it the army? Yes, in Israel, everything is called the army. Okay, cool. So that's still out of Tel Aviv. Are you still going to your main house or you have to be like on a barracks or whatever? It depends. There are times like this and times like that. All right. So yeah, you come out and you decide, hey, I want to start my own business. No. Wow. That was long before that. Um, <laughs> got out, decided that I want to be an engineer, like solving problems. And I very much like technology. So I went to study electrical engineering in Tel Aviv University. And throughout that time, I was also working part-time as a, just a part-time engineer, again, in, in a very large hardware corporation, kind of learning the ropes, seeing how the business works, learning how to be an engineer and not just learning and studying, taking courses and classes on that. And while it was a great experience working there for a few years, even after I graduated, it just wasn't driving me to wake up in the morning and go do something. And so I decided that the business side speaks a lot more to me. It's a lot more interesting. I like working with people, I like hearing people's problems and trying to solve them. And I thought that I'm going to have a much better, you know, just enjoy life more if I get to be on the business side rather than on the coding side of technology. And so I decided to make that switch. I went to work, as I mentioned, in management consulting. So completely off tech, but just learning the ropes of what's a profit and loss statement, what's cash flow, how do you model businesses, how do you manage people, what are operations problems and cash flow problems and all sorts of business problems that large corporations are struggling with, kind of learning the business ropes, if you will, through consulting. And then I joined my first startup, didn't start it myself, but I was one of the first employees in a mobile advertising startup that was trying to build what today is known as behavioral targeting. So trying to figure out not who you are as a person, whatever, 25 to 45 living in Chicago, but what do you like? What will you engage in? What time? Does it make sense to show you an ad for a product or a service or an app or a game or something in the morning when you're on the way to work? Or does it make more sense to show it to you in the evening or on the weekend? And different people behave differently and they like different things. And that's what we decided to build way back when, almost a decade ago, when Facebook are ju were just thinking of how do they do behavioral targeting? Obviously, Facebook are the masters of it nowadays. But back then, 2012, 2013, nobody knew what this was. And so that was the first business. Yeah. And you were still in school at this time while you were doing that? No, that was after school. Okay. So right after you get out, Instead of like, I guess, trying to get, make money, if you will, you're like, Hey, I'm going to do this startup. Cause imagine startups, even when you're in Israel still, that they're probably not paying you a lot. They're not, they're definitely not. No. When I graduated, as I mentioned, well, I continued to work as an engineer for a while. Then I switched to consulting and consulting pays well, but per hour it pays almost nothing because you have 80 and a hundred hour work weeks. Yeah, that is the thing that people think about. Like, even though you might make 100, 200K, you're like, well, if I'm working 100 hours a week, is it really worth it? <laughs> you know? I mean, I think it was amazing. I think consulting, if you want to learn something new, consulting forces you to learn that, first of all, because you work so many hours, but also because you're so engaged with the client and you can't make a fool of yourself or of your team 
So you have to learn the ropes very, very quickly. You have to dive deep and actually understand what's going on. So to people who want to figure out how businesses work or how corporations are running, things of that nature, I highly recommend consulting, assuming that you're okay working, you know, those crazy hours. Where you worked at the consulting company, it says is a local partner of Bain & Company? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, because the Bain & Company, I think people have heard of here in the U.S. So you're basically an arm for them. And so that was up till 2014 you were doing that? Correct. And then from there, so what year did you actually start the first startup? January of 2014. Okay. Just trying to figure out the years and what age you were, if you will. So you did that even on the side while you're working 80, 100 hours a week? No. I mean, we started the discussions of me joining the other co-founders who were already thinking of this idea back probably late 2013 and early 2014 is when I pulled the trigger, let the consulting company know that unfortunately I won't be staying any longer, gave them my notice and moved over to the startup to actually be the first business person. So everything from sales and marketing and customer service and making sure that we're actually building a business because before me, the, the team was mostly coders and algorithmics engineers and things of that nature. And while it's great to build technology, if you have a lot of engineers, if you don't make any money, nobody's able to pay salaries and everybody goes home. And that was one of the first phrases that the CEO told me when I decided to join was, welcome aboard. If you don't make any money, we're all going home. Best of luck. <laughs> So it makes sense why they needed you. That's a perfect example of what you're saying, because I guess you understand even with your company today, how you're going to literally make money, because that's what you learned with that consulting company. And that's why this other startup needed you. I think a lot of people can understand this. Like, I see apps all the time, and I'm like, how the hell are they going to make money using that app? And I'm like, did they even think that through or whatever? And they need a guy like you to come in there and like, hey, guys, even though it's good technology, we've got to make sure that we're doing something that somebody's going to pay for. Correct. And I'm seeing that a lot as well. You know, you have a lot of people who have really cool ideas and they decide to run for it. And whether it's a small app or a mobile game or something like that, or you see very experienced engineers, you know, or developers who have this idea and they decide to run for it before they actually think it through. And to me, having the best technology in the world, if you can't sell it to anybody... Um, or nobody's willing to pay for it through whatever business model possible, then it doesn't make any sense. And unfortunately, you can see that here in the United States, but also in Israel and other countries who are driving innovation, driving startups, a lot of people, unfortunately, are not thinking through the actual business. How will they make money? And it's fine if you think you're going to be able to run just on advertising, say, if you think you're going to be like Google or Facebook or Instagram or anybody like that. But you need to think it through. You need to check the numbers and what's the audience and how many people do you have to reach and how frequently will it actually make sense? At least personally to me, the notion of we're going to grow really big, we're going to raise a lot of money, and then we'll figure it out. Personally, I'm not a fan of that, you know, <laughs> of that business model. I need to see the light at the end of the tunnel. doesn't matter how long the tunnel is going to be. But if I don't know that the light is even there, it's very hard for me to believe in an idea. Just knowing that it's completely, nobody needs this. It doesn't solve anybody's problem. And we have no idea how we're going to make money out of it in a few months or in a few years. And so what was the name of the company that you joined? Taptica. Did you help Taptica make money? I believe I did right now. It's a publicly <laughs> traded company in the London Stock Exchange. So it's grown very much since the early days when I joined. 
All because of you? Of course not. The team was amazing. I'm not saying all because of you, <laughs> but honestly, like beforehand, did they not have any direction business-wise? They did. And they had very early discussions and they had a few very early customers, but the idea was to bring somebody who will be dedicated to finding more customers and building the business and hiring people, et cetera, et cetera. Can you walk us through? Because I think this is going to be perfect of like what you actually did there for those two years, because anyone with a business now, they might be spinning their wheels and trying to figure out how do I make money or whatever. So can you tell us kind of like before and after? Again, I was joking around. It wasn't just because of you. If <laughs> they started making money, right? But there had to be some things that you saw that maybe we could use in our business that you helped Taptica with. Sure. I mean, obviously, the first thing you have to do is to have a great team. That's where I'm messing up already. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if it's a business that's more than one person, if it's more than just you, you have to hire people that you can trust. If you can't put your trust in your own people, then why are we wasting time here? So I would say that's the number one thing for me. It doesn't even matter if which type of role you're hiring for, sales or marketing or development or accounting or legal or whatever. You have to work with people that you trust. Because if you can trust people, whether they're your employees or your colleagues or even your vendors, you're going to burn so much time and effort and emotions on trying to double check and triple check what they're doing that you won't have time to do what you're supposed to be doing. So to me, that's the number one thing. I think after that, you should actually think of what your role within the business is, and how to prioritize correctly. And to me, my goal was to, first of all, do kind of the sales and marketing. Because we had to create a pipeline of companies who would join us every month, new customers, new campaigns, again, because this was in the advertising space, new campaigns from existing customers, new customers that just completely joined from scratch and kind of go through that pipeline. And I remember my first week, my co-founders sent me to conference in Amsterdam to go and pitch, you know, what we're doing to, it was a fairly small three, 400 participant gaming convention very famous in the gaming industry in Amsterdam. I'm new to this, new to this startup. I don't even know how to pitch. And there was no real pitch. And so the first week, I literally sat down with our product folks and our engineers trying to figure out what the hell is it that we're actually building? Let's not even talk about what we're pitching to customers. What are we doing here? Where's our value? Which problems are we solving? And what are we charging for? What's the business model? And especially in advertising, there's a billion different business models or different KPIs or metrics that you can charge customers for. So where do we see our value coming from? And I had a very quick crash course during that week, flew to Amsterdam. And I remember during the flight, I was jotting notes on my notebook of, do I think this makes more sense? Do I think that makes more sense? What would be different types of or different aspects of our product that would be interesting to people? And then I just spoke to everybody, not trying to pitch anything, everybody that I could in that conference, trying to figure out what makes sense. Where do people feel the pain and where would they want to potentially engage in our company or in our product to help them solve that problem? How many people were actually in the company when you had joined? Because I'm curious, like how much runway and stuff they had as well before you made went to Amsterdam to start pitching the company. <laughs> I believe it was about 20 people. Okay, so pretty good size. All of them are developers and engineers. It was a decent size, but it was bootstrapped. It was like a friends and family round that invested. No VCs or anything of that nature. So there was a little bit of money, a little bit of runway, but not too much. Not too much to the point where it was like, sure, we can burn two more years of everybody's salaries 
even if nobody's able to sell anything. So it was almost just like any other business that you build, not like the usual startup mentality where you go to raise an angel round and then a venture capital round and a bigger venture capital round, et cetera. And so what was their kind of quote unquote pitch before? And then what was their pitch after you talked to them and before you, I guess you went to this conference? That's a good question. We're talking about seven years ago. Well, even if you don't remember the specific, I guess maybe what you came up with, you know? So you'll forgive me. I don't remember the pitch from seven years ago, but I think to me, it was more about how do you tailor the messaging to each customer's problems? Because every customer has different problems, different challenges in their business, different goals that they want to reach in their business. And they don't think the same. We're different people. We think differently. We have different priorities in life. And so it's not necessarily how do you nail the pitch to everybody? The question is, how do you build a pitch where you can plug and play different aspects that would make more sense to the customer? So how do you figure out, not that you solve one very specific problem, but how do you solve a lot of problems using the same product or using the same services? So I know this past Friday was your first group call. Did you uh, get the answer you were looking for? Actually, I got a really good answer that led to like more questions. So those are like the best answers. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I try to make sure all of our new members get their questions answered first. Yeah, that was perfect. That was definitely perfect. Yeah, I was like, okay, now I've got to research this and ask my team this. Like, it was perfect. Yeah. So I've listened to a number of podcasts. And actually, the guy that runs US Staffing Services, I've been talking to him about doing some work with him, with one of my businesses in the States. So I've linked in with people because of it as well. So it's been fantastic, like the, the kind of network you get. And I decided to increase my subscription to gain access to your extra Patreon content. As you've said in some of your adverts, it's paying it forward. I mean, obviously it's, it's hard for you to, to monetize what you're doing on a mass scale. So I decided it would be a good investment to get access to this stuff and join some of the group calls uh, with the other Patreon members and get access to better content. So you worked there for two years. And it, so if I just look up the company name, that always kind of helps me if I can figure it out right in the beginning. It says Taptica, the global mobile advertising technology, which is a mouthful. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know. but that's basically what they do today, yes. if you will. They're able to target, like, even though I'm a white 35-year-old, there might be a black guy who's 55-year-old, but we might have the same likes, if you will, right? So is you're adapting that technology based on not the demographics, my age and race and that guy's age and race, but what we end up liking? Is that kind of the idea? Yes. I mean, obviously, I don't know what today they're focusing on, but the technology back then was exactly that. How do I figure out what you're interested in? And also, when and where and how are you interested in that? Because if you think about it, we have, well, before COVID, at least, I mean, in normal lifetime, we were somewhat different people during different times of the week. When you're on the way to work on the train you're, or in your car, you're a slightly, slightly different person. You're interested and you're focused on different stuff than, say, when you're at home playing with your kids. Sure, you're the same person, but your mind is focused on different things. It's interested in different things. You want to spend time doing different stuff. And so our technology was trying to figure out 
how do I differentiate between those different types of characteristics, of interests, of things that you like to do or like to listen to throughout the day and throughout the week and throughout the year, etc.? And how do I target or how do I tailor the messaging of different advertising campaigns so that they fit in the best time, in the best location, etc.? Or if it's late at night and I want to get a little kinky, like I'm a different guy, then I'm waking up going to work in the morning, <laughs> right? Is that the idea? Something of that nature. <laughs> you didn't like my joke? I thought it was good. Anyways, my wife always says I have to warn her before I tell a joke. So sorry, I did not warn you there. So you were there for two years? Almost three, I believe. Okay, so what made you want to move on from there? I mean, we grew very quickly in those three years. Yeah, how big? Like, what's the difference in size? I mean, we went public and it, I think we grew to, wow, I don't remember, I think about 800 employees. Jesus, that's a lot. From about 20. So that's a lot from one country to offices in, I believe, eight or 10 countries when I left. And I had multiple roles around the business side from starting in sales and, sales and business development and marketing, kind of building the business side. I built a startup that the company invested in. It was kind of spun off an idea that I had and I got the company to invest in my idea, which was very successful and was actually kind of acquired by the company once we were proved our success. I was in charge of M&A and I bought a few companies and invested in a few companies. So at some point I decided that I want a little bit of a break from the advertising space and I had the opportunity to come here to the United States. And I thought that for me and for my wife and my family, it just made sense to, to take that little bit of a break. Well, before we, yeah, we talk about you coming to America and spinning off there. Why don't we talk about the spinoff that you're talking about? Because that sounds pretty cool that it seems like maybe that's where you made your first amount of money, good amount of money, if you're able to make a startup within this startup and sell it back to them. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. I mean, it just as a curious person, I'm always trying to figure out whichever space I'm in, kind of industries that I'm interested in, what are other things that I could see companies are should be doing and they're not doing. Are there any holes or any challenges where, you know, innovation could come in? And the startup within a startup idea basically came from me noticing a very specific space, specific problem within the advertising industry that was just underserved. There were some products in the market that were trying to solve that same problem from different directions. None of them were very successful, at least not at the scale that I thought that they should be. And so I said, well, I can obviously leave my company and go and start looking to for angel investors or venture capitalists to give me some money and build a company from scratch. Or I can kind of utilize the connections and the back office and the know-how of this company, pitch it to them, get them to still invest in me, just like investors, but also give me a little bit more support. So a lot of people like to call it smart money, you know, rather than dumb money. So it's money that comes in with some experience and with connections and with know-how. And to me, this was incredible because you don't have to start completely from scratch if you have somebody that you can lean on that can help support you. And so for me, it was not just the money, it was legal support and a little bit of HR support and just the systems, the accountants and things that as an entrepreneur, you don't think about. You kind of have to deal with those things. That's a little bit of building a business, any type of business. But if I can partner up or raise money with from people who will give me that support, well, it just saved me a lot of time and a lot of money and efforts looking out for these types of people to support me. 
or doing these things yourself. And so to me, that by itself just saved me, I would guess, at least a year of actually doing work. So I was able to hire a team, go to market a lot quicker than I would have probably been able to do that if I was just doing this as a standalone. Yeah. So, but what did you actually end up creating? It was a solution, I would say, not completely similar, but kind of like Taptica's solution was for advertisers trying to figure out how to get to the audience. This was a solution for what's in the advertising space called publishers. So all of the ad spaces, the websites or apps or games who show ads to people, how do we solve the problem for them? Because they want to maximize their revenue. They want to make as much money as possible. Can we build a sort of a smart technology that would do that? And I want to help their side. Because way back when, a lot of companies were focused on the advertisers. They weren't focused on the ad spaces. Because we can go on and on for about eight hours. Um, if we're going to go throughout my entire history, but, you know, trying to be conscious of our time. So trying to be concise. So I appreciate you being conscious of our time and not getting too detailed. Like I said, I am listening and trying to figure it out because it's obvious thus far that all the businesses you have been in have not been super simple to understand, I would venture <laughs> to say, right? <laughs> I think they're very simple to understand if you're coming from within the industry. Right. Makes sense. So from there, how much money do you actually end up making before you decide to come to America? Okay, I can share that. I'm sorry. Did you make like millions? Did you make any money? Yes. Could you retire for the rest of your life and not work anymore? I would say that's a very kind of a personal preference. I would not retire even if I could have. But no, back then I couldn't have retired, at least not to the standards of living that I want to live in, which is not super high, but I want to have kids someday and kids cost a lot of money and obviously afford housing and going out and things of that nature. So then why did you decide that it was time to go to America versus stay in Israel? I think it was half of a personal decision, half of a business decision. My wife and I both wanted to have the experience of living abroad in another country. I always wanted to take a break and go study an MBA, like a full-time master's in business, and preferably learn from like the best that I can get a hold of or the best professors that I can get to. And so I decided to come here to the States. I went to the University of Chicago. It's named the Booth business school, it was an amazing experience. You get to learn from people who, I like to call it walk the walk instead of talk the talk. A lot of professors, and specifically in my business school, are what's called practitioners, not just researchers. They actually work in the industry that they teach, whether it's marketing or strategy or venture capitalist and private equity people, finance, et cetera, et cetera. Because just for me personally, I connect a lot better with people who have tried what they're preaching. It's a mental thing. It's how my mind is wired. And it was an amazing experience to learn from one of the marketing advisors for the CEO of Pepsi, taking a full semester, 10 weeks, a couple of times a week, meeting that person. He's talking to the CEO of Pepsi, trying to figure out marketing for Pepsi worldwide. That's incredible. How can you get access to those types of things? And so that's why I decided I wanted to take a little bit of break from the advertising space. Obviously, the company grew very widely and very successfully. I want to see what else is out there. Deepen my thinking, maybe change my thinking process, my methodologies a little bit. Round me up as a business person and how I'm thinking about things. Was Chicago just as warm as Tel Aviv? <laughs> no, hardly. But it is as sunny. Even when it's really cold, most of the time, it's very sunny. It doesn't rain or snow as much as I thought it's going to be. Yeah, tell us about some of the other culture shocks, because how old were you when you came over too? I was 30. So just tell us about like what's the differences, because I'm intrigued of like someone who was born and raised in Israel, 
you coming over at 30, what were the biggest differences that you noticed? I don't think I had too much of a cultural shock, I'll be honest, just because I was already working with different nationalities in a lot of different countries. Even when I was an engineer and throughout consulting and the first startup, I was always working with people abroad. And so it wasn't, I would say, as bad as it could have been if I haven't had that, those experiences. People in the Midwest are extremely friendly. Sometimes it's a little bit odd if you don't expect it. Just random people saying good morning over on the street. That was a nice surprise, I have to say. I think most of my surprises were good surprises here where the weather wasn't as bad as everybody said it's going to be. And everybody is a lot nicer than what I expected them to be, which was really nice. I think business school specifically, it's just there's so many nationalities and so many different people from different countries with different experiences that it's not, I think it's a much smoother landing than say if I would have just moved here and went to look for a job. Are people in Israel just mean? No, they're not. I mean, people in Israel are extremely, extremely warm, very, very friendly, much more hugging than they are here in the United States. But it's a different culture. Everybody's awesome here and everybody's awesome there. So I very much like both of these countries and living in both of them. Well, how about food or housing or sports? I mean, there's got to be some differences. Oh my God. It's a lot more affordable here than living in Israel. I think Israel or Tel Aviv, I think was crowned like three years in a row, the most expensive city in the world when it compares to the salaries that people are making. The Midwest is a lot more affordable. I mean, I love Chicago. Chicago has so much culture, you know, whether it's museums or shows or musicians who are and artists who are coming to perform here. It has so many different types of restaurants and so many different types of cultures. I mean, it's definitely interesting and different, don't get me wrong, but it's still awesome. I can't really compare. You know, in Israel, I have my friends and family, kind of my roots are still there. So I definitely miss it. But the Midwest was extremely welcoming, has everything I could think of, and more so. And especially the affordability part is very, very different from what I got used to in Israel or what I thought it's going to be while coming here. Because in Israel, you obviously hear about New York and Boston, San Francisco and LA, the most expensive cities in the United States. I'm very happy to say that Chicago was definitely not one of them. That's good. See, that's what I was talking about. Like, there's little things I would never know. And I'm sure a lot of people now listening at the cost of living in Tel Aviv sounds like compared to your salary is off the charts, which I would have never known. I mean, and then I guess it wasn't too bad meeting friends if you were just doing an MBA program because like everyone's new when you come in a new MBA class, right? So everyone's kind of forced to make friends. So I guess that was one benefit too, versus if you just came over and got a job, maybe it'd be a lot harder to meet friends, if you will. Completely. It's a much smoother landing, especially, you know, in business school, unlike maybe other types of master's programs. I don't know. I haven't taken any. But in business school, there's a very big emphasis on people skills and teamwork and things of that nature. So right from the get go, you're partnered up with people, even outside of class, just to tour the, the grounds of the university, check things out, you know, do all sorts of small projects that are not related to academics whatsoever just to get to know more people. It was a very smooth landing. How about your wife? How would she think about it? As far as I know, obviously, she loved it. I mean, she came with me to any event that she could have. She obviously found a job, you know, in her profession, because first of all, we wanted the income, but also, you know, she wanted to have something of her own. What's her profession? She's an IT consultant, or she used to be. Now she's a product manager. 
Well, yeah. So that's why I was wondering. I was curious too, because at least you had the NBA. I was wondering about her because she might not have that, but it sounds like there are enough events where maybe she could meet people too with you. Yes. I mean, she has friends in my class that I don't even know that existed until she told me about them. Yeah. That aren't friends with you. They don't want to be friends with you, but they <laughs> want to be friends with your wife. I mean, I mean, the classes are so big, at least in the University of Chicago, we were, I think, 550 or 600 people in a class. You can't get to know 600 people, especially not at the get go. And so, I mean, my wife was taking classes like I was just, just things that she was interested in. And she got to know friends from her workplace, friends from my school, mutual friends, people that I don't know from my class, etc. So I believe it was a smooth landing for her as well. But it's a challenge, especially for, for international couples who are moving to the US. You kind of have to set the expectations correctly with your partner ahead of time. Otherwise, it's going to be a much tougher landing. Did you just sell everything that you had? And then when you came over here, you just started renting? Or did you like leave some stuff at your parents' house? Or I'm just curious if you brought anything over or if it just y'all just came with your luggage? I'm sure I left some clothes with my parents. You know, we did save some stuff in my, my parents have a small storage space, obviously like uh, things from our wedding and all sorts of things that we wanted to save for when we come back. But no, we mostly sold all of the furniture and the car and everything and, and just moved over. So you're planning on going back eventually? I believe so. I believe so. When? Hard to say. We do very much miss, you know, our friends and family. And I mean, obviously right now we don't have kids, but at some point when we'll have kids, I think like friends and family would matter a lot more, I believe for us and how it is right now when it's just us. Well, yeah, thank you for that insight. I mean, even though we're here mostly talk business and whatnot, that's what I've always been curious about. Like I imagine obviously you'd sell all your furniture and stuff, but there has to be some items that you, like you're saying the wedding stuff that my wife would want to keep somewhere. If like I moved to, let's say Israel you know, <laughs> and I had to get rid of everything. I'm like, I guess like I could keep some stuff at my parents. I was thinking if I ended up doing that. So and those are just interesting insights because we've got people who listen all over the world. So I'm sure that they're always thinking about that. What was the hardest thing? What do you say overall about moving to the U.S.? And then we'll move on with your story. Well, it depends if you're asking specifically about the U.S. or just moving abroad. I think if you're moving to the U.S., especially for us when I came here on a student visa, just the entire visa process here is so complicated. There's a million different types of visas that you can come over with. And then there's the green card process and whether you can get it or you can't get it. And how can you stay here after you graduate school? Etc. So some countries, the U.S. is not alone doing that, but some countries are a lot more difficult. And so for me, you know, I had to kind of ramp up my knowledge on how these processes work. What are my options? What I can or cannot do? And kind of how do I tailor the rest of my journey here in the U.S. so that we could stay here? Because neither my wife nor I were American citizens. I think moving abroad, generally speaking, it's a lot of planning just like building a business. It's a lot of trying to figure out where are the potholes and how can you figure out how do you jump over them if you're going to stumble, stumble across them. And so moving abroad, just like you have to think of everything from scratch, bank accounts and credit scores and credit cards and living, where are you going to live and different neighborhoods and different cities and what's going to be easier on your, obviously on your pocket and on your bank account, but also a nicer living. How can you get to know more people? It's super complicated and convoluted to move between countries. So my best recommendation is a lot of planning. Just try to think of everything that you think that you're doing in life. Will you be able to, how can you transition that between countries or between locations? Well, thank you for the insight. You made it full circle just <laughs> saying it was like running a business, right? But it is, it is. So I think of people 
as at least one aspect of people is a business. Our bank account is just like a business's bank account. You want to grow that bank account. You don't want it to go down. You know, our salaries and the money that we're making, I don't know if you have stocks or bonds or dividends or things of that nature. It's kind of like a profit and loss statement of sorts. So I'm trying to model aspects, not everything, but some aspects of my life just as if they were a business. And how would I prepare for the next step? Or would it make sense you know, to do this transition or that transition? Should we keep renting or should we buy a place? Should you buy a car or keep riding the bus or the train or things of that nature? Or maybe work from home? There's a lot of different questions in life that you can think of just as if they were a business. Just makes things a little bit simpler, maybe a little bit more methodological to think about. Well, thank you for the insight because that's the exact same thing I was telling one of my friends the other day. It's like, dude, it's not that complicated. If I just take, like for me personally, I don't spend a lot of money. You know, like just because I joke around that I'm allergic to spending money. I just don't like to do it. You know, <laughs> if you think about business wise, I'm like, dude, if you open up your own business, it's the same thing. It's not overly complicated. If I want to make a lot of money, right, make put more money in my bank account. And do I keep buying or, you know, having my expenses go up, right? Like there comes a point where I have to think of that. Like I just take myself as a personal person and put myself in the business. Maybe I could go get a lot of debt and load up on debt on my business and whatnot. But for me personally, like I don't like that, you know, so at, like I wouldn't want to do that. So why would I do that in my business if I'm not doing that to my personal life? So it seems like you kind of have the same thought process of running your life as a business and just you're just taking yourself out of your personal stuff and putting it in the business, like understanding that it's not trying not to overcomplicate things, if you will. Definitely. I would say I've been told more than a handful of times that I'm one of the more, I don't remember the exact phrasing, but one of the more cautious entrepreneurs or risk averse entrepreneurs that people got a chance to beat. Just because I'm trying to always think about, you know, different possibilities, not just what happens if everything succeeds, but if this thing doesn't succeed, what can I still do with it? Can I spin it off to do something with it? How can I not just spend money? whether in life or in business, and lose everything, so to speak? How can I make sure that I'm doing something the smart way, where even if I wasn't correct, I still, you know, gain experience, gain knowledge, gain contacts, build whatever, an infrastructure, something of that nature, that I can take that and move forward. And I don't get back to, not get back to zero. I mean, I think you made that, we can see that decision even when you went to University of Chicago. Maybe if you didn't come out with a job or anything like that, you're probably thinking, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? Well, you'll probably end up having a job, but at least you're going to have all those contacts like you were, I think it sounded like you thought about, right? So just thinking of like, okay, what's the best case, worst case, and just always looking at your downside and how you can minimize it. It seems like you're, you're good at doing. Exactly. Well, I hope I am. <laughs> yeah. So why don't we round out, I guess, the last couple of years of your adventure after you graduated the University of Chicago? How long did that program take? So the program takes two years. And during my second year, I already started my second startup as a co-founder that was called Dormigo with a another Israeli who was living here in Chicago. And we just stumbled across each other's paths, became friends, didn't even talk about business. And at some point, we just over beer in one of the evenings, we just started chit-chatting and my co-founder had all sorts of ideas that he thought about starting in the real estate space and was asking me all sorts of questions because he always had 
worked for corporations, for big companies, never had his own business. So he asked me questions about how did it work to start, start the first startup? What were pitfalls? What can he do to prepare? Things of that nature. And at some point, the conversation was so interesting. We kind of saw that there was chemistry there that we said, well, how about we just do this together and kind of dive into that space? So at Dormigo, we were trying to solve a very nasty problem that unfortunately a lot of people don't think exists in the real estate market. My partner and I were trying to think, is there a better way to figure out the right price for either rental properties or hotel rooms? So place, you can come in, you rent it for a day or a week or a month or a year. You live in it for that period of time. So hotel room in an apartment building or a rental property are basically the same. It's different types of time frames, but it's the exact same purpose. Is there a better way to figure out demand and supply in the market, kind of make a recommendation based on all sorts of data analytics and a little bit of machine learning to recommend the right price? Now, how do you define the right price? That's a very arguable question that a lot of smart and educated people are arguing. But basically, the question for us was, can we increase the revenues and the margins and the profits of our customers, companies who own a lot of real estate or the big hotel chains, for example, by giving them a smart algorithm that would make some sort of a data analysis and recommend a different price for, say, a hotel room or a specific apartment within an apartment complex? And how does that change throughout time? And it's a very nasty problem. There's definitely more than a handful of startups that are trying to solve this, but all of them were trying to think of the problem, I would say, top down when we were looking at it bottom up. So most of the real estate startups, at least that I know of, trying to figure out how much is a property, say, if you're talking about a hundred units apartment building, most of the startups today are trying to figure out how much is that entire building worth? And based on that answer, you know, making all sorts of recommendations and things of that nature, we were looking at it from just from the opposite angle. How much is each unit going to be worth? What is the rental income or the expenses that it's going to have? And then how do we take a hundred different building blocks and aggregating them into a building? So in the end of the day, the product was very simple. It had two facets or two aspects. One Assuming that you already own a property that has that you're going to rent, again, whether it's for short-term or for long-term, that doesn't really matter. What is the recommended price that you should have every day of the week, every week of the month, every month of the year? And how does that change as more data comes in? And the second aspect was, let's assume you don't actually own a place, but you're looking to buy a building that has multiple units in it. How do you value how much that building is going to worth? How much should you bid on it? Or how much you how much should you offer to buy it for? Most of our customers were real estate, private equity companies and large REITs and hotel chains and things of that nature. It wasn't for the average person looking to just buy two units, a duplex or something of that nature. And with Dormigo, we were very fortunate in the end of last year to get acquired actually by a real estate company out of Washington state. And they were looking to get their hands on the technology and prevent their competitors from getting their hands on this technology. So we got bought out and I wasn't looking to move to Washington state. So I stayed here in Chicago. Some of my team relocated over there, obviously, and started the new startup, Solar Simplified. Yeah. So you did that for two years with Dormigo? I would say official in the official capacity was about two years or so, maybe a little bit more, but from idea to actual execution, probably three. 
maybe a little bit more, but again, we were very fortunate. Usually businesses, whether it's tech startups or just actual businesses, they don't get acquired that quickly. What company acquired you? They were called Stay Alfred. They were a short-term rental real estate company out of Washington State. How many people were working there when you actually sold it to them? I believe we were 25 people. For starting it up, did you just use some of the money that you had saved from Taptica or did you all get money from elsewhere to start Dormingo? Both of us kind of drowned up our savings, put everything into the company, which is something that in retrospect, I don't recommend for most people. You need to have some savings, especially if you're married or you have children, you need to take care of your family. But yes, both of us kind of took as much savings as we can, our 401ks, things of that nature put everything in the business as we were growing it, not in one shot. We didn't raise any money. So completely bootstrapped. So was that scary for you? Very. I lost a lot of nights, a lot of sleep, you know, trying to think, not just scary on a personal perspective. You employ 25 people. They're themselves and their families. They're counting on, on this business to succeed on, you know, the income and their salaries, etc. And you definitely lose a little bit of sleep every now and then just because you're worried. And I think if you're not worried, then something is off because you need to be worried. These people are trusting their time and their experience and their, a little bit of their lives, at least their professional lives with you. Obviously, they know what they're getting themselves into because it's a startup and it's a small company, but they're trusting you to lead them and to lead the business to the right outcomes. And so it's definitely worrying both in the professional aspect, kind of as a manager, but also just putting all of my money into it. We were very fortunate that it was very successful, but many businesses, just statistically speaking, many businesses fail, especially tech startups that fail. And so I would, in retrospect, I would recommend saving a cushion of some sort and that how big it is, you know, depends on how much each person is spending. But I would definitely not recommend pulling all of your savings into your business. It's definitely worth it to try to figure out, can you be more lean, more nimble? It also gets you to think more of how do you actually make more money faster if you have that feeling of scarcity in your business. So I do recommend, obviously, you know, putting some money into starting a business, not running straight for the hills, raising money from venture capitalists or things of that nature, because you have to get a sense of the market. You have to get a sense of the customers. What is the actual problem? Kind of figure out what everybody likes to call the product market fit. Maybe you don't figure out the product market fit right from the get-go, but you figure your fit with the market very quickly. Do you fit there? Some people, they fit in specific industries or specific business models when others do not. From a comfortable sense of it or mentally, do you like this industry? Do you like this business models? Things of that nature. So I would say start first with figuring out the market, figuring out the challenges. What do people actually need? What are they not telling you that they need? And then you can pour either your money into it, more money, kind of like what we did, or you can go and raise outside capital. Appreciate you doing the call here. Yeah, favorite podcast by far. I love it. Oh, yeah? Why is that? So I graduated 2017 from Michigan. I heard that shout out the other day. That was pretty cool. Basically, two months after I graduated, I started listening to the podcast. Loved it. I think there were maybe 30 episodes or something out by that point. And I consider myself to be pretty entrepreneurial. Started a business last year. This helped a ton. And it's hard, I think, to find entrepreneurs. I was just looking for entrepreneurial meetups. And I think, wow, this is more of an awesome opportunity to talk with other entrepreneurs. The value is, I mean, it's insane. Like 
people make these types of entrepreneurial insight things are thousands of dollars. This is 12 per month, but one per month is like nothing. So what do you think about that group call? That was good. It's cool because you get to see what other people are doing. They're kind of in the same stage as me. Hopefully that was helpful. Definitely. Yeah. Actually, a lot of stuff. The Upwork thing was very interesting. And then from there, were you given like stocks as part of Stay Off It or did you get paid actually money? No, since I didn't join, I said, and my partner did follow kind of my mentality, all cash. It's very hard for, you know, to trust a not publicly traded company. Obviously, if we would have bought, been bought by Fortune 100 company or something of that nature, stock is traded, you know it's not going to go down to zero. When you get bought by a company that is private, who knows when the liquidation is going to happen. And so I personally preferred, and again, my partner followed, just to go for an all-cash deal and get that chapter ended, start with the new chapter. And so the new chapter was Solar Simplified. It was. So did your partner from Domingo come over to Solar Simplified? No, he did not. He actually moved to Seattle to continue his professional career from there. Oh, even though he quit, the company was in Washington, Stay Alfred though, right? He, did he just go up there for a little while to with Stay Alfred and then quit or cashed out? I believe he moved for, you know, the integration and migration kind of to continue running the company. And I believe that he's no longer there. Not sure which of the tech corporations he was working for right now. But I, I believe he got poached by one of the, the large tech companies that we all know. Did you start Solar Simplified? I guess it seems like now, personally, like financially, it seems like you've been doing well on all your startups. You're two for two, right? Right. Yeah. Well, you did tell us, actually, you raised a little bit of money, so you did learn, right? I did. And I did learn that it's, first of all, as I, as I already mentioned, it's not smart to put all of your money in one place. Sometimes you have to, kind of like what we felt with Dormigo. But with Solar Simplified... I believe the energy industry in general, it's a very heavy industry. And unlike other types of software industries where, you know, we can be a little bit more nimble and take a little bit more time because the sales cycles are shorter and the infrastructure doesn't cost as much energy, everything is big and there's a lot of regulation around everything. And so in my mind, it made more sense to, first of all, bring in more money that's not just my own, but also bring in, as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, smart money. So some of my investors actually build companies within the energy space, not specifically in solar, but they know the space, they know the regulation, they have a contact. And so for me, it wasn't just the money, it was also the experience and the contact and the know-how that they were bringing in addition to the actual money that, that they've invested in us. Well, I appreciate you walking us through your timeline here slowly and understanding like all the little nuances I think we've learned from you. I guess kind of in closing up, do you have any other words or wisdom or anything else you'd like to touch on before we get off the call? I would split it to two. A little piece of advice for the entrepreneurs in the group or people who are thinking about entrepreneurship. Do your research. A lot of people, you know, and if you listen to podcasts or watch YouTube interviews or CNBC or whatever you like to watch, a lot of entrepreneurs or experienced entrepreneurs would just say, just go for it. I'm not a fan of that. Sure, you need to go for it at some point, but do your research, market research, kind of research yourself and what you're feeling comfortable with. How much risk are you comfortable with? How much risk is your family okay with whether you're married or you have children or things of that nature and try to tailor before you go for it, try to figure out what you're going for. 
do that homework a little bit. Don't get into, like, avoid the analysis paralysis situation where just researching things for years and you're not doing anything. I think that's what some entrepreneurs mean when they say go for it. But don't just jump into the deep water and then figure out how to swim because if the deep water has sharks, that's going to be very problematic. So I'm very big on customer interviews and coffee chats within whatever industry you're trying to solve. Try to ask a lot of questions to people who you think would be your customers and then learn from the answers. Listen. You know, they say we have two ears and just one mouth. So listen to what people are telling you. And based on that, now decide on what exactly it is that you're going to go for. I think the second thing I would say is if you want to save money on your bill and you want to support renewable energy wherever you live, at least right now in, within the United States, please go on solarsimplified.com. Try to sign up. If we're servicing your area, wonderful. You can get that done within one or two minutes. And if we're not servicing your area, at least we're going to see that people in your area aren't interested and we're going to put our focus on expanding to those areas as soon as we can. Well, thank you for coming on, Aviv, and sharing your story. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me, Austin. I loved it very much. Yeah, if anyone wants to say thank you for doing the interview or reach out to you to learn more, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? LinkedIn, probably. I'm happy to connect with everybody who wants to connect with me. Aviv Shalgi, or if you look for Solar Simplified, you'll obviously see me because we're a very small team. Happy to connect, happy to support any entrepreneur or people who are thinking of entrepreneurship. If there are any questions or pieces of advice that you'd like to bounce off, very much uh, happy to kind of pay it forward to our community. Well, thank you, Aviv. And yeah, that goes for anyone listening. I mean, I said it from time to time, but, you know, connect with Aviv or other guests on LinkedIn, I think it's probably honestly the easiest way. And then send them a message thanking them for taking the time to share their story to help you guys. Because, I mean, he didn't have to do this interview. And I think that you taking the time to do this, it helps a lot of people. So the least you can do, I would think, is connect with them and just say thank you for doing this interview, even if you don't have any question in, in particular. Because, I mean, that's how you also expand your network. But the main thing is like, just take this time to thank somebody who's willing to take their time to share their story with you. So thanks again, Aviv. Thank you very much for having me, Austin. Cool, so I'll end it there. Very much appreciate your time, Austin. Yeah, congratulations, man. You're obviously a really smart guy. I'm excited to have you on and sharing your stuff. So it's, thank, uh, you. thank you. And yeah, you do a good job explaining because it is complicated, but I guess you've done complicated <laughs> stuff of trying to make it simple. I was going to say, check out that one episode, though, the 88. I think oh, that, yeah. that guy's super smart. Mm -hmm. He could probably give you a lot of insights. And he was the only other guy that I've had in this kind of space that I thought his, his story was really interesting and you'd be able to connect with awesome. him. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I'll definitely check it out. All right. Thank you so much, Austin. It was really a pleasure. And obviously, if I can be helpful in any way to you, please let me know. Well, if you're interested, I'm starting to do group calls with past guests. So with people who are like members to help support the podcast. So when yours comes live or about to go live, I'll probably see if, if you're interested in doing a group call with some of these people who are, are members, because a lot of these members of mine have their own businesses. So that way they can just ask you questions one-on-one -on -one and I just kind of run the show if you're interested in doing sure. that. Sure. Yeah, happy to. Okay. Yeah, I'll send you some samples of what I mean when it gets closer. We'll do a quick five-minute introduction to you and then open it up for questions for people who listen to the podcast so they ask you directly. Yeah, very, very happy to do like a Q&A session of, of, of some sort. Perfect. If you'd like. Yeah, that'd be awesome. All right. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll let you know when it's about to come out. And that way we can schedule a session around that time as well. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Have Thank you so one, much, man. Austin. You too. Bye-bye. These are the kind of opportunities you're missing out on by not being a Patreon member. 
Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I got to go get that other guy. Hey guys, High Energy Austin here. These are the kind of opportunities you're missing out on by not being a Patreon member. We literally have these past guests hooking you up with contacts to help you with your business and giving advice on what they do in your situation. And the guests you're about to listen to, Aviv, see, he's a real smart guy and he's going to be on an upcoming group call. So if you want to get in on these group calls with a high energy guy like me and a smart guy like Aviv, then become a Patreon member today.